Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. We like to pay our respects to elders past and present and to acknowledge that sovereignty over this land was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drug, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery stories and highlight that shared experience saves lives. This week I'm joined in the studio by Ree, a member of Overeaters Anonymous. Welcome, Ree. Thank you. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, th- shared experience, strength and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. They welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. And Ree's here today to tell us how it's done. I hope so. <laughs> she hopes so. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I can use, I just take us back to uh, how it all started and where you grew up. So I grew up in um, Melbourne. Um, I was raised um, by a single mum who, um, with um, one older brother, one younger brother, and um, also my grandparents who kind of came in there to help when needed. Um, my mum um, is is an alco- alcoholic actually and um, struggled. She struggled a lot. So it was a lot of... Um, away time and distance time and as a kid um yeah there was a lot of vulnerability there there was a lot of um questions that were never answered um and also a lot of basic needs that were met but that was about it so physical contact like hugs you know and also that idea of everything's going to be okay was never really introduced into the family and so everything always felt scary everything Mm. there was a lot of fear there was a lot of unknown there was a lot of um just making up the stories because nobody told you what was actually going Mm. on and so that happened a lot and I was kind of split between my mum and my grandparents um and my grandparents are immigrants and um they had a, a lot of issues around um showing love as well and so food was always a way that love was expressed and they amazing cooks, just amazing. But it was if you didn't have seconds, they took it personally. It was an affront. It was like you don't clearly don't love me. Um, and so it began pretty early for me, where I knew that in order to show love, I was to eat. Um, but then the side, the obvious outcome of that is, you know, I I put on weight, and there was also commenting around that because. I think for them as immigrants in particular in in that period of time, which was the 80s, um, you know, it meant a lot. How you looked to the outer world meant a lot to them. And um, so I had to represent the family. And being a fat kid was not how they wanted to be seen because that was a moral failing in some way for them. So, um, yeah, that's how it began for me. And when did that um, fatness become something that was part of your that you realized was you and it was part of your identity you know it was mostly it was my brothers actually Mm. they started to bring it up um I was always bigger than my brothers height wise and physically 
Um, so my big brother's two years older and my little brother's two years younger. And I was taller than them and bigger than them till my big brother was 16. Like it was just, I grew really fast. Um, and I'm the height I am now when I was 12. And um, I knew I was a big kid because they would tease me. They would say, you were f- you're mm-hmm. fat, you're lazy, you're all these mm-hmm. like tropes, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it sucked. It really sucked. I remember feeling, and, and in my family, nobody said, hey, well, you're okay. Just ignore mm-hmm. them. They're your brothers just being dicks, mm-hmm. essentially. But it felt like in people being silent that it was true. Uh-huh. And there was never a full stop to that or you're you're good enough. Um, and that's, that really, that haunted me. And I mean, I remember losing a lot of weight old when I was older. My brother still called me fat. I think it's just an identity mm. for them. Um, they don't do it anymore. I remember there was a big stop when I got older and I just said, look, guys, just stop. Mm. Like, this is ridiculous. Um, but, um, and then there would be subtle insinuations from my grandparents Um you should do it was usually weird because they're you know they're old school so it'd be like you should do gymnastics i'm like <laughs> what? what is this? not subtle not subtle yeah i'm like oh, no like i'm not gonna do gymnastics <laughs> like it was never anything i showed any interest in at all oh, or yeah. you should you you're tall yeah. you should do some activities like yes. basketball and i'm like i just was never that kid i played oboe you know what i mean <laughs> So that was, it was not anything that I wanted to do. And then eventually it got a lot less subtle, which mm-hmm. is just, you know, you've, you've eaten, you've, not you've eaten too much. That never came into it because that was love, I think, but yeah. it was, it was your, your fat, yeah. you know. And uh, can you describe the psychological burden between having, uh, sorry, behind having to go back for seconds and, you know, any guilt associated with if you didn't want to do that kind of thing? Well, it was, oh, it ended up being like, it was interesting actually because my mum didn't like cooking um, and I ended up cooking a lot as a kid um, because my mum disliked doing it. So I would be cooking um, for myself and there was this idea of I never knew what a balanced meal was or anything like that or, you know, that kind of thing. But if I'd go to my grandparents' place, they would have beautiful food and there really was this, they couldn't, they were coming from, uh, war-torn country so you couldn't leave anything on your plate yep. everything on your plate had to be eaten or it was parceled around the table essentially so it was always my my grandfather finished the plate yeah you know no matter what so it was like you had to eat it or weirdly he would be punished for it mm. and he would have to eat it because there was there was never there was never food that went into the compost yeah. you had to eat that food and uh the dynamic of your house in terms of you know not being told hey, your brothers are dicks, don't worry about it. Did you seek reassurance from friends at that age or anyone outside of the family? No, I thought it was normal. Mm. You know, I think when it's such an isolated family, like we were really, really isolated. We didn't talk to other people. We didn't have outside friends or if they're outside friends, they were really unhealthy. They encouraged my mum's drinking, things like that. And my mum did have what what at that time um, was considered, they called it a nervous breakdown. And she had two of those at two times in my childhood where she just, was absolutely not functioning and she would lock herself in a dark room for days at a time and not function. And, um, you know, I, and I remember coming out, there was this, I was constantly afraid of whether I would come home to a a mum who was alive, like genuinely, like it was constantly on my mind going, are you going to be, I'd go to school and I'd cry because I'd be like, am I going to come home to a dead mum? Are you going to be there? And 
I loved my mum so much. Like it was, I remember school camps, it was the same thing. It was just this terrifying thing for me. I'm like, if I'm not looking after you, who, who is going to do this for you? Because I'm here for you. And food did fill that void of, it gave me assurance that I'm going to be okay because it filled something in me that needed to be filled. Yeah. And it was the need to be loved, to be seen, to be heard, to be enough. And food was the only way I could do that. Yeah. I, I'm really struck by the number of um, guests we've had on recently, especially OA guests who are talking about the trauma that came from the Second World War. Mm. So interesting. And a lot of it is um, it does come out with eating. Mm. An eating disorder because the shortage of food during yeah. the war mm. then translate and then and also the grief from the war probably has a lot of people with shut down emotions and then the, the food becomes the thing. So yeah, so interesting. Mm. Um, so what about school? Read did, did, did the kids? At, did you have a happier time at school? Um, or, or? I love school because um, my brothers weren't there. Well, they were there, but they were. You know, it was I wasn't getting shit for how I looked, yeah. and I was a smart kid. So um, the school I went to knew what was going on with my mum mm. and they were super, super supportive. Um, how, I did, did, how did they find out? I don't know. It's like mm. this mystery. I think she just stopped turning up. You know, essentially my guess is she stopped turning up and she was their main point of contact for a while and then okay. she wasn't there. Um, and so my guess is that's what happened. But it was like this mysterious thing. I remember them giving us a bunch of flowers to bring home to my mum. Mm. Um, so it was this, and again, it's like, I feel like now hopefully we have the vocabulary to mm-hmm. talk about this stuff to kids. Mm-hmm. But at the time, nobody talked about it. And that was kind of this really you, – you, I was always like, well, how much do you know? I appreciate all the support and the love I'm feeling, but, like, how much do you know about what's going on here? Um, and, yeah, I don't know how they found out. It's kind mm. of an interesting question. Mm. But I love school. Yeah. I liked it a lot. I, I love to learn. Um, and um, it felt like an escape. And it was the one thing – besides eating, that I could get um, rewarded for. Approval. Approval, yeah. exactly, yeah. 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 yeah, so I worked very hard. Yeah. Mm. It's, uh, it's interesting because I feel like in a lot of cases of kids that struggle with their weight when they're a bit younger, you know, the place that they don't want to go is school because mm. they get bullied and there's no way that they can really turn and, you know, they, they want to stay home kind of thing. So there were the instances of that were few and far between or not at all? Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to think. I, I remember feeling different in school like I know I went through puberty early yeah um so I went through puberty in primary school which was kind of a nightmare um I didn't realize no my family didn't talk Mm -hmm. I didn't know what was going on I was like holy smokes you know pubic hair wow what's going on nothing nobody talked about anything and then I remember like and and it's this part which is interesting because it's about the food but it's also about my connection with my body and there was this just absolute unknown connection and I remember coming home from school once um it was the first time I got my period actually and I came home from school and I said mom I think I'm dying Mm. I'm bleeding I think I'm dying and then she was like so happy about it oh congratulations you're a woman I'm like like what the hell was that like where's the information here I and then I remember a couple days later I walked into my bedroom and there was a book called like every girl it was like this 19... 80s. 70s book. <laughs> yeah, 80s book for me. And it was on my bed about puberty and things, but it's she didn't want to talk about it. Uh, she, You could read about it, but there was yes. no discussion. There was yeah. nothing allowed. And mm. so I think there was this shame, shame. around my body uh, for a long time, even though it's absolutely normal. And I know that as an adult, you know, but it's 
as a child, I was like, holy smokes, nobody at school talked about it and nobody at home talked about it. And I was the only girl. So it was a very, it was terrifying actually going through puberty for me. But, um, and so it was also something I hid at school. So if people, girls were always like, hey, you know, mm-hmm. hey, have you got your mm-hmm. period yet? And I'd be like, no, absolutely not. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I was never. afraid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was yeah. very afraid to share that with anybody because mm. it felt shameful. And take us to when you started to um, try to manage your weight and your food. So I think the first time I really thought there was a problem with my weight. So I didn't have much of a relationship with my father, but he did come back around the age of 10 for me. And my mum and he, and that was kind of the second time my mum had her nervous breakdown um, because he left again. Um, But he weighed me. And it was the first time I had paid any attention to that. I had shame from being bigger Mm. and called fat and all these, you know, derogatory terms at that time. Um, But it was when he weighed me and he told me I needed to lose weight. And it was one of the very few instances of contact with him. And I was like, well, if he thinks this, then what does everybody else think? And how did you take that? I was ashamed. Mm-hmm. Absolute mm. shame spiral on that one. That mm-hmm. was a terrible, terrible thing to do to a child. And mm. I, again, in retrospect, I can see that. But at the time, I just remember going, I want to be loved. You know, I really want to be loved by you. Like, I don't want you to leave again. You're the only, besides I had my grandfather, but he was the only male in my life that I really, really wanted approval of. Mm. And he he didn't go for the academics. He went for how you looked. And that that was something I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the first time I really mm-hmm. said, oh, I'm going to work on this. And I remember he gave me a Walkman, which is, you know, it was a hot pink Walkman. <laughs> it was sweet. And it had like one tape in it. But I would run, I started running around the backyard, mm-hmm. just in loops, in loops. And I was 10, trying to lose weight. That's and when it began. Did the shame hit you straight away or was it something that you ruminated on and it got worse with time? Mm-hmm. It did pretty straight away. Yeah, I was just like, oh, shit, if you don't see me as okay right now yeah. and I'm your kid, like, I don't know, I can't. Mm. Uh, and dieting wasn't talked about in my family, which was interesting, but there was – I knew something was going on with my mom. Mm. Like, she would – go up and down, up and down on the scales and things like that. But more so, there were a lot of laxatives in the household. Okay. Um, and a lot of um, – I knew that that was a problem and that was strange. Um, yeah. So I knew there was something going on there, but I never really explored that. And I still haven't to this day mm-hmm. with my mum. Mm-hmm. Um, just but the same with alcohol. It's something she just doesn't talk about. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, we will take a break and we'll come back and we'll hear the next part of your story. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au 
Thanks for your letter and your kind words of comfort. It's good to hear from you again. I'm going okay, taking it day by day. You know what they say, can't complain. It's just these little aches and pains. I got them always now. Sunshine or rain. Out there on the river Maybe I could visit Haven't had a trip in a while There's nothing much keeping me here I see the gang maybe once or twice a year You and me, we could walk a rambling country mile Test out these little aches and pains When I the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, screening the very best documentaries from South by Southwest, Sundance, Tribeca, as well as the best local Melbourne and Australian documentaries. Online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 30th of July. For more information, head to mdff.org.au and cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Living Free Show on 3CR 855 kilohertz on your AM radio dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you would like to listen to one of our many podcasts, then you can find us on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. 
I'm talking today with Ree, a member of Overeaters Anonymous. Um, just before the break, Ree was telling us about, um, I think, just going into your teenage years and how you started to think about how to control your weight or, or uh, manage your food. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, teenagers. Um, I f- ugh. Um, yeah, so I started running around mm-hmm. the garden a lot, which sounds mm-hmm. kind of crazy and innocent almost, but it was to control my weight. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely to lose weight. And from there, I remember my mum my got remarried eventually and she married um, somebody who liked to scrounge around the nature strips. And she picked up, I don't know, he picked up, sorry, one of these, um, it was... It was almost like a pad and you would on you'd put it on the ground and you'd put these special socks on you could slide beside cool stuff. Sounds um, fun. it was fun. <laughs> it sounds great except when you become compulsive about it. Aww. And I would sit in my I stand in my room really and just do that for hours. And it there was no real direction on how to lose weight. I had no idea how to do it. I just knew I had to do it. And I didn't actually I don't even know if I had the resources to recognize that when I ate a lot of food, I'd put on weight. Oh. I don't know if I had that connection for a while. And so that kind of control really didn't come into it um, because I still needed to, as we, I think a lot of addiction is self-medicate because my home life wasn't great. Mm. Um, I felt very isolated. I felt very alone. Um, and so I would self-medicate by eating basically constantly, constantly. Um and so I don't really, it's weird, I don't really remember my teenage years much. Mm-hmm. Um, the food, the issues began, but they ramped up mm-hmm. in my 20s, really. So tell, tell us about how they ramped up, how, what, what happened? Um, it just, you know, I ended up, I fell in love with somebody from America and I ended up moving to America and leaving my family behind, which, you know, actually was pretty easy. I'm going to be honest. It was a pretty easy change for me. And I went to America and I started studying and... Um, I just ate, I just ate, and I just ate. Um, and I remember I, oh gosh, it was years in, we'd been, we got married. This was in my 20s. I got married when I was 24. And um, I hit this point where I was just crying all the time and eating all the time. And I would have what I would consider binges, Um, And now I can say that back in that time, um, it wasn't recognised as a binge eating disorder, but that's really what I had. Um, So it would be a big amount of food in a short period of time. Then I'd feel incredibly guilty about doing that and I'd try and starve myself. Um, And if there was any events, so we're talking weddings, any potential photographs, a vacation somewhere, visiting family, oh, my God, if I had to visit my family in Australia, holy shit, I went into insanity. Um, where I would just try and lose weight and I would weigh myself every single day. And there was this, honestly, there was no point in time where I wasn't thinking about food or my weight or my body. And it was, honestly, probably 90% of my brain was taken up with that. And just, I was exhausted and I didn't have time for relationships. I didn't have time for my husband. I did realise I didn't like academia that much which was kind of nice to know and I liked using my hands mm. I really like using my hands so I went to culinary school makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you do when you love the food mm. and you like using your hands mm-hmm. um 
So I did go to culinary school and, of course, I ate and ate and put on weight. And it was weirdly acceptable there. And it was yeah. expected that you would try food well, and things like that. Not weirdly expected. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not guaranteed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, so I started a career in food. And uh, how did being at culinary school change your relationship with food? It didn't. No, yeah. it didn't. Yeah. I still love food. And I... It's interesting, and it's it's still a challenge to this day. I have I'm a stay at home mum at the moment, but I love using my hands to make food. And there is this point: do I go back to that? Because I left that once I had a child. I stopped the, being in the food industry because um, I couldn't stand on my feet for ten hours being pregnant. It didn't mm. work for me. Um, and so there's this there is this crux where you're like can I make this work can I make this happen sanely and you know as I get along in program I can I know that and there is there's a really lovely hopeful thing in that for me because there was no way before program that I would ever think I could continue to work in food and be sane um but you can be and that was really nice to know but um what got me into program was the idea I had hit this really low point where I just couldn't eat enough food anymore to make it okay. That's essentially what happened. I just kept eating and I couldn't make it okay. And um, I was going to a therapist at the time and I remember just going to her office and going, look, I, it, the amount of talking I'm doing to you isn't solving this problem. Not like it's the only problem. I was really depressed. I was like on the verge of getting a divorce and leaving the country again. And she said, well, have you heard of... Overeaters Anonymous. Oh, wow, that was good. Yeah. It took her years to get me there. Mm-hmm. I wish she told me years beforehand. About time. Yeah, about time. And I was 30. Um, and I said no. And I remember during that week I was thinking, oh, do I go, do I go? And I had a doctor's appointment. And in my head I had a wait. If I ever hit this point, mm. shit is going to hit the fan. There's no going back. I'm screwed. And I went to the doctor and I had thrown out the scales at home which I'm grateful for. I still don't have scales in my house. Um, And she weighed me and I hit that number. And I remember being in the doctor's office just out of my mind crying, like hysterical crying. And my doctor going through like all my blood work and stuff, she's like, you're totally fine. Like Mm -hmm. there's nothing to be worried about here. But in my brain, I was broken. I was screwed. There was no coming back. That was my lowest of my low of my low. Like, I don't know how to come back from this. How do I, how do I diet enough, not eat enough? How do I exercise more? How do I, and I hit this point of like, I can't, I just can't do it anymore. I don't know. I have nothing left because I am burned out on this stuff. I'm sick of thinking about food, sick of thinking about my weight, sick of thinking how I look. And um, so I went to my first meeting and it was such a relief. Yeah. And it was, it was in America and there was probably 40, 40 people in the room. And I sat in the back and I just, I'm, I know so many, so many <laughs> people do it. It's, you just sat there silent and cried. And it's exactly what I did. And at the end of that meeting, I did say, you know, hey, this is my first meeting. Um, I'm, 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 a, I'm a compulsive overeater. There's absolutely... Knew it. Knew it in my bones. There's never been a doubt in my mind, and still to this day, never been a doubt in my mind. And I'm a compulsive overeater. And I um, I remember there was a woman there who just slipped a little piece of paper on my chair, and it just said, you know, hey, my name is blah, and I've I started a program at 30, 
and your story is really similar to mine. Mm. Would you like me to be your sponsor? And I said, hell yeah, I will mm. take whatever I can get. Yes. And that was kind of the beginning mm. for me of away mm-hmm. yeah and what stopped you in the lead up was it was it denial or was it you were bargaining with yourself or were you, you too ashamed to go oh it was only a week really mm-hmm. before it and I think it was this I didn't know what OA was nobody had really explained to me what it was and I I think the idea of talking about the behaviors I had around food the yeah the usual the well, not the usual the eating absolutely compulsively so I remember my one big story for me was going to culinary school coming home and going hey I'm gonna bake you know because I went to culinary school for baking and pastry specifically and I'm like I'm gonna bake some bread and I came home and I baked three loaves of bread I ate two and I had no idea I it was like I blacked out in that moment I had no mm-hmm. idea but when I came back I was like where'd the other two loaves go wow. genuinely like where did the other two yeah. loaves of bread go and they were in me because yeah. the person I live with does not eat loaves of bread. I eat loaves of bread. Was that your husband at the time? Yeah. Or, yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, what was uh, the relationship like with him in regards to your, yourself and your weight and the and the feelings that you had to deal with? Yeah, he's he's such a beautiful human. I honestly, I feel incredibly lucky. He has never mentioned my weight, and I think. There is such freedom in somebody who doesn't, I don't know, because I, although I said weight wasn't often discussed, it was often mentioned in my childhood. It was often judged um, through other people. And he just genuinely has never said anything about it. And um, I think I have this one story where I know he's not a compulsive overeater whatsoever, because I remember obsessing about this one piece of cake in the fridge that he it was his birthday cake and I ate it of course like seriously and um he didn't even know it was gone like he had no idea you know and I'm like holy shit I ate your piece of cake Mm -hmm. you know I um but he for for the weight thing I he didn't give a shit Mm. as far as I know or if he did he kept it very quiet and he did very well at keeping it quiet Mm. But what he cared about was he was noticing my inability to connect and my anger. I'd had a lot of anger, a mm. lot of anger um, and rage. How did that come out? Ugh. Um, so it would come out in obvious ways around food. So if I couldn't get what I wanted, I would just be very, very vocal yeah. and angry about it and be like, I want this now. Mm. Like, I want it now. And it was this really fascinating thing because it's, it felt so out of the blue, but there was rage if I couldn't get what I wanted. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. It was – it's interesting because he's such a calm human being. Like, there was no – it was nice to have a contrast, really. But, um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so uh, back to that first meeting. Uh, we're going to have a break in a minute, and afterwards we'll talk about what you what you do as an OA member once you've decided to mm-hmm. go to meetings. So – what feeling did you take away from that first meeting or, or hope, what idea? Hope, hope, hope. There were people here I could, they were talking about those addictions, that, that food behaviour, the eating. I'd say I'd throw something in the bin and I'd just eat the whole thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I'd say I'd absolutely be out of my money that one slice of pizza, I'd eat the entire pizza. Mm. I'd, I just had no ability to control mm-hmm. food, but it wasn't about the food, it was about what I was thinking. I just mm-hmm. felt so disgusted with myself. And they were they were saying the same oh, thing about always. themselves. Yeah, yeah, it was beautiful. 
And were they talking about their own uh, history too, their own childhood? Often, often history, but mostly, often it was just the day to day, yeah, and just functioning in a mm-hmm. way that seems sane and grounded mm-hmm. and connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's almost more relatable. You know, it's like what happened yesterday. You know, this is my most recent experience. Yeah. It's what I'm dealing with now. Mm-hmm. Kind of you can work with that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it was inspiring mm-hmm. and hopeful. And did you were you conscious at the time of am I going to have to give up my favorite foods now? Or were you not thinking? Oh yeah, that? Oh, you oh yeah, mm-hmm. oh yeah. Worried about that? terrified. Holy uh-huh. shit, I was terrified. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, still am. Yes, honestly. Yes, yeah, still am. And that's what you've got to manage on a daily Absolutely. basis. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Okay, we'll have another little break and, and we'll come back and hear all about that. Um, so the song you heard before was um, "Little Aches and Pains" by Paul Kelly, um, and here's another Paul Kelly one called "How to Make Gravy." Joe here I hope you're keeping well It's the 21st of December Now they're ringing the last bell If I get good behavior I'll be out of here by July Won't you kiss my kids on Christmas Day? Please don't let them cry for me. I guess the brothers are driving down from Queensland. And Stella's flying in from the cold. Gonna be a hundred degrees, even more maybe. But that won't stop the road. Who's gonna make the gravy now? I bet it won't taste the same. But just that flour, salt, a little red wine. Don't forget a dollar for tomato sauce for sweetness and that extra tang. And give me love to. Hope he can hold his own Do you remember the last one? What was his name again? Just a little too much cologne And Roger, you know I'm even gonna miss Roger Cause there's sure as hell no one in here I wanna fight I pray the baby Jesus Have a Merry Christmas I'm really gonna miss it all the treasure and the 
slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Tune in to Rainbows Don't Fade With Age on Radio 3CR fortnightly on Mondays at 2pm. Rainbows Don't Fade With Age, Melbourne's only show dedicated to all things LGBTI, ageing and aged care. With stories and information to empower and inspire action for all those interested in the health, well-being and visibility of older LGBTI people. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. This is a living free show on 3CR digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming and we're talking with Re about compulsive eating. So um, Re, you talked just before the break about the fear when you first went to an OA meeting that you're going to have to uh, not eat some of your favourite foods or change how you eat. Can you tell us about that fear and how you overcame it? Wow. Um, Overcoming it. (laughs) Yeah, still, yeah, absolutely. Um, The fear was I like food. I need food to calm myself down a lot of the time. And um, that was the fear. But the overriding idea for me was I'm exhausted. I need help I've been in therapy for years it's not working I don't know what to do anymore I've got to try something different and somebody already put their hand up to be my sponsor so what have I got to lose and so I decided to give it a go and the beauty of OA these days is you choose how you want to eat and what you want to eat and um, there can be sponsors who have various degrees of control on that Um, I'm tend to be on the more you choose what works for you you know yourself Mm -hmm. better than I do I can say you know my you need to know your red light foods your green light foods and yellow light foods so foods that for me I have foods that I will binge over easily if I eat one I can't I have to eat them all Mm -hmm. you know I can't stop myself I genuinely can't stop myself um and that's a red light food yellow food is food that I sometimes eat I might need to weigh it Mm -hmm. Um, for a serving size because I don't know what a serving size is. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I'm okay with it. And green light, I can eat that and be totally fine. It's Mm -hmm. not a big deal. But um, it began with um, my sponsor at the time saying, you know, let's try three meals a day. Um, 
And my three meals a day were huge, friggin' huge. And I was fine with that. And if my sponsees do that at the moment, I have no issue with that. You know, it's the time between the meals where you get to think and you get to sit and you get to feel, you know, you can still find potential escape in overeating, right? Mm -hmm. And I I still do overeat sometimes Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. I have no doubt about that. But I have a lot more time in between now. And when I first stopped um, eating between meals, so I was both a binger and a, an eater all the time. So mm-hmm. it was that's how it worked for me. It was either all on, all nothing, or, yeah, binging. Mm-hmm. And um, when I stopped, I um, started not sleeping. So I started having insomnia and just losing my mind. I would not be able to sleep for months at a time. Mm-hmm. And it was then that I was diagnosed with anxiety um, and that was something new to me. It wasn't really, like I always kind of knew I had anxiety, um, but food covered it up that I really didn't need to do anything else about it. Like it was genuinely medicine for me. Mm. But when I had those periods of time without eating, I needed, it, it was genuinely messing with me and I needed to get extra help for that. So I, you know, was diagnosed with anxiety, um, generalized and social at that time. And I got help with that. Um but I would never have figured that out. Food would have just constantly, and I would have had to eat more and more um, as life went on. I know mm. that just to deal with that stuff. Um, but I was working the steps with this sponsor, and I remember hitting step five with them, um, where I meant to kind of share what's going on in my life and um, my step four. And I said, I can't do it with them. Mm. I felt really judged by her. By that particular person. Mm. And it was interesting because there is this, I think it, programs taught me to listen to myself a lot and to trust myself trust your body yeah trust my body and go this doesn't feel right it's not right and just to stop and I did with her and I found another sponsor and you know I think that's the beauty of program too is like you've learned those things that I I had never been able to say no I'd always wanted to be approved of Mm -hmm. and loved and liked and to say hey you're not working for me that felt like I was rejecting somebody else and it was terrifying um, but it was the right thing to do. And so I had, you know, I've had three sponsors in program now. Um, and uh, what about those uh, experiences made you feel judged specifically? Uh, you know, it would be, I remember her once saying, oh, you know, because remember I said, you know, if my sponsors eat big meals, I really don't care. Yeah. She did. Um, okay. And that, <laughs> that made me feel judged. Yeah. Um, so it would be like, oh, you know, you know, roughly how much rice did you have or whatever. And mm. I think she was coming from an older school version yeah. of what I believe, which I do believe that there is um, – you can be healthy at any body weight. I do believe that. Mm. And it's something I, – I, I don't feel like there's evidence to point otherwise. And I think there's so much fat shaming and things like that around people. I think some people are fatter than other people. Some people are thinner than other people. There's diversity and that's the beauty of life. And I want to continue that. I don't think OA's job is to make everybody the same, right? We talk about abstinence and trying to maintain a healthy body weight. Whatever body weight that is for you, that is your body weight. I don't want you to necessarily lose weight or to put on weight or whatever. I don't, I don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. I want you to be sane, pure. I want you to function as a human yeah. and to be grounded. That's the most important thing. It's not about that. I want. Remember I talked about... of my brain was thinking about food and my body. I'd say now it's probably 20% of my brain thinks about food and my body. And that's what I want 
for other people. And that's the recovery, isn't it? Yeah. The recovery is not about how many calories you're taking in. It's how you're dealing with your pain. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And even the joyous stuff, because I would eat over fun stuff. Yes. Yeah. If I would yeah. be like, hey, that was a fun thing. Oh, my birthday's coming mm. up. Yeah. I would eat over that. Yeah. You know, I'd yeah. eat over good and bad and everything in between. And what sort of, what kind of things now do you do to replace the food that you would have used for that? I do, I mean, it's OA stuff. You know, I have a program that is rinse and repeat and mm-hmm. I don't, you know, every day. So mm-hmm. I don't get credit for the shower yesterday. I have to shower every day. Yes. So it's every day I call my sponsor. Yep. I have two sponsees who call me. I go to a meeting a week at this point. I commit my food every day. And which sounds kind of crazy. I don't know if I would have, if somebody had said that at the beginning of the program, that I would be creating a food plan every day and having to write that into somebody, I'd be like, holy shit, that sounds kind mm-hmm. of insane and mm-hmm. controlling and weird. But it gives me so much freedom. And structure. I, structure. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to think about food. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember what I wrote yesterday for what am I having for dinner. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. And that's crazy mm-hmm. for me from where I come from. Like mm-hmm. that is pure yeah and it so my brain is free mm-hmm. to think about everything else mm-hmm. and it's so much more to life yeah to build a life yeah. For yeah like there's so much more room yes. now for those things because yes. yeah yeah i feel like the concept of being uh healthy at any weight is such a freeing mentality uh how do you kind of balance out the freedom and restrictions in regards to your eating where you are today from day to day um well it's it's i do definitely as i said i I write to my sponsor. So I every day I write to my sponsor, hey, I, I'm going to eat these things, which is for me three meals a day and nothing in between. I have had a child, you mm. know, so during that time, and I had gestational diabetes, so I did need to change my food plan and I always have a sponsor involved. To me, I it's it's kind of that higher power thing. I don't have the ability to necessarily make sane decisions by myself. I need help. Yeah. And I my sponsor works very well in that capacity for me so if I'm going to change something I text her before I eat it you know I have to do it before I do it or I have to call her and go oh shit something's gone terribly wrong here because Mm -hmm. I'm trying to hide something Um, and that's an indicator of something going wrong in my life or something's coming up in my life that I haven't really addressed Mm. Um, so that's how I deal with it yeah I feel like um, that takes so much of the pressure off of yourself to have to deal with the issue because I'm the one responsible for what's going on in my life and whatnot and I guess having a sponsor is, is so important for something like that. And mm. uh, what specifically about um, having a child changed your uh, eating habits? habits? Um, well, uh, pregnancy yeah. changed um, my eating habits. Uh, nausea changed my eating habits. Gestational diabetes was insane. It was a very interesting thing where – and there was a lot of guilt in that, like had I ruined my body. Yeah. Um, but I have to say the miracle of Overeaters Anonymous for me was I never wanted a child. I was with my husband for 10 plus years before we decided to have a child. Wow. I needed to work through stuff because I thought I would be a terrible mother. And I, and on top of that, I didn't want to put on weight having been pregnant. Mm. That was a terrifying prospect for me. Um, and that's not what happened for me. You know, it was actually the opposite for me. Um, and um, being a mum means I have to show up. I have to. I have no choice but to show up. And there is still some fear around food for her. It's interesting to watch her grow. How do I raise a child sanely when I'm insane around food? Um, and we talked before the program about my my husband is a normie mm. and 
a I, normal person and, for you, but people like that. Right. We just made this up in the coffee shop beforehand, this <laughs> idea of the normie yeah. versus uh, the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and he's a normie, so he, <laughs> he is very good around going, hey, that sounds like a sane thing, or maybe not, let's do something different. And so I can talk to him about it pretty openly, honestly. Great. Yeah. Mm. So go back to um, to tell us some of some of the things that you've overcome. Listening to you there, I'm seeing that the program's really a lot about letting go. Yeah, it's not about hanging on anymore and carrying Mm. that bundle. It's like drop the bundle, let as much go as you can, give some over to the higher power, which is part of which might be the sponsor. Mm -hmm. What else have you let go of, and are there places that you have to avoid? Um, there are places I have to avoid. You know, things I have to let go of um are relationships mostly i haven't spoken to my mum for instance mm-hmm. for four years um yeah. i had to stop that relationship because i noticed the pattern right and that's another beauty of um, working the program is noticing patterns and um how you are around other people and really addressing those um and so i haven't talked to my mum for a long time and that's that was an incredibly tough decision that took i mean took 15 years for me to come to that point um, and I couldn't have done that without OA because again, like being in therapy, it didn't matter. I wanted, I so desperately wanted that relationship to work and it wasn't, um, and it couldn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't going to work. What was the moment you realized that? Was there a specific thing? You know, um, so I have, a, a way of kind of figuring stuff out. So if I know, for instance, coming in today, I knew I'd be nervous, mm. right? It makes sense. I'm talking about rather private things mm. with strangers and, um, I, Called my sponsor, I talked about it, what was going on, how I was feeling. I do a 10th step on it. So I write about it. I write about how I'm feeling, what's going on. And then I move my body. So I went for a run this morning, right? And those things usually solve things very quickly for me. Mm. And I kept trying to do that with my mum. It didn't work. I couldn't uh, run enough mm. to make that go away. And that's your system. That's, that's my system. Use. That yeah. is guaranteed. Uh-huh. And it was not working anymore. Um, and it just never did. Um, and it would just ramp up and ramp up. So that's when I realized that I, it was not working. And I went to a therapist and we tried family therapy and it was a nightmare. Mm. I tried one session and I said, I'm done. I'm done with this. I can't do this. So I feel like I had kind of tried everything, you know, on top of talking, accountability, dealing with my side of the street, like the whole, you know, doing as much as I could. It wasn't up to me. Well, you said 15 years, you know, that decision yeah, was... That, I mean, I'd thought about it before program, right. you know, going... Because I'd moved overseas. I was like, oh, this is really easy. Yeah. I don't have to see it. I don't really yeah. have to interact. It's really easy when you don't have to. But when you make a conscious decision versus an avoidance, it's a very different feeling. Mm. Yeah. And it means you can make a conscious decision to reverse that any time. So mm. it's mm-hmm. your, your decision. It's yeah. not... Again, you're not just running away from something. You're facing up to it and making a choice. And I told her. I had a discussion best I could about it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We've we've only got a few minutes left, about four minutes. Mm -hmm. So um, what what would your message be to somebody out there who's dealing with similar things to you at different stages that you might have been at? What's your message? There's hope. There is hope. So much hope. And there's so many beautiful people in program. And in programs in general, so I'm talking OA, but there's just so much there to explore and to be curious about. And um, there's so much freedom and grounding. And it's not about the weight. Mm -hmm. It's about what's going on inside. Mm -hmm. And um, 
to have courage and to look at that. But there's hope. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, and I, I'll put that out there too. That, I mean, there's hope for people in the situation with a parent who's an alcoholic too. There's hope. Mm-hmm. Would you like to talk a little bit about the ACA fellowship too? Or um, not? Yeah, I'm pretty new in that one. Yes, that one's been yeah. a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do do ACA, mm-hmm. Adult Children and Alcoholics. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really about the intergenerational trauma yeah. being carried from one member, of, well, not one member, but family to family. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's really looking at, for me, deeper issues of control and manipulation yes. and how you kind of deal with those things in your life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you feel like you're settling in okay? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a different thing. And it's interesting having done the steps in, like especially Ninth Step in OA and bringing Ninth Step into ACA. Mm-hmm. It's a very different feeling for me. Can you tell the audience if you can remember it off the top of your head ninth, what the Ninth Step is and why it's different? Um, the Ninth Step is um, a making amends yeah. step. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the exact wording off the top of my head. You made direct amends and to people wherever possible, except yep. when to do so, but injure them more. Yes. Thank you. Yes. And so it was, for me, I remember doing Ninth Step in OA and it was, I had hundreds yeah, hundreds and hundreds of people, places and things that I was resentful for mm. or fearful over, hundreds. And, I mean, the core um, the core amends I needed to do, I, I did. Um, and it's, it just feels different in this one because I've already done the backlog and yes. now it's more fresh. It's like, all right, these are parenting things. How do I deal with my child? And mm. those amends have to be living amends. And how do I raise her so I don't raise her the way I was raised Yes. How do I bring issues to the light? Mm-hmm. How do we talk about things? Because um, they're super important. How I talk about things and let her ask questions and be curious in a safe environment and feel supported and safe and um, loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's sort of healing your own inner child, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. In the process. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a lot of inner child stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like today we've placed a big emphasis on communication and the mm. benefits of having an open line of communication. And I feel like your child is really lucky to have had something like that with you. I hope so. so yeah. yeah. Um, thanks for coming in today, Ree. It was fantastic. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Um, if you are having difficulty yourself with compulsive eating, you might like to contact Overeaters Anonymous. You can find them at oa.org.au. All meetings welcome newcomers and the only requirement for OA membership is the desire to stop eating compulsively. There are meetings listed on the website at oa.org.au forward slash meetings. These may be face-to-face or online. Now, you were telling us before, Ree, that a lot of them are mm-hmm. online at the moment. They're international too, aren't they? That yep, You can get absolutely. on one any day, any time, yep, somewhere in the world. Are they listed on... We yeah. have the local ones um, at the address you sure. said, the Australian one. And then if you look at oa.org, um, yeah, there's take you yep, to international. US, yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, coming up next, we have Balanoir, the Spirit of Wa, hosted by Uncle, T- Uncle Taljim Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR and we will see you again or you'll hear from us again next week.
life built so silently Creeping its way on the inside Making its way through listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.